And then there needs to be a consideration, do we need to change on the basis of that feedback? It's a mistake to value every bit of feedback equally. This is Milena, and welcome to another episode of Scientific Mavericks Podcast, where it is my pleasure to introduce an incredibly talented team of thought leaders and innovators who are at the forefront of reinventing the way retail companies and channels make business decisions today. Hyvory is pioneering hyperlocal retailing by combining artificial intelligence, operations research, and human-centered design models to help CPG companies and retailers generate a return on physical retail space investment. Hyvory does this through simultaneously optimizing and localizing product, price, space, and promotions. And today, it is my great pleasure to introduce Andrew Purchase, Global Head of Commercial at Hyvory. Andrew has over 15 years of commercial and supply chain experience as a corporate lawyer, strategic sourcing expert, and retail banker providing advice and implementing strategic direction for new and changing businesses. So without further ado, we'll kick this episode off with Andrew diving into the changes and trends in the B2B tech space he has observed in the last three years while at Hyvory. There have been significant changes in the B2B uh, tech space over the last three years. There obviously is a significant amount of excitement regarding um, artificial intelligence and machine learning solutions. Everyone thinks they need to be involved with them. Often a lot of people don't know how or what that means. So there's a lot of soul-searching and identifying how can companies access this new mode of technology most effectively. Um, So there's almost been a revigoration of the whole debate with companies in terms of do we build it ourselves, do we rent uh, the technology or do we buy it? And it's a question that often the more mature companies go through quite regularly. But since this onslaught of new technology has been made available, uh, I think there's been a refocus on this conversation in terms of how they acquire it, what's the most effective means of doing it, and particularly with the advent of cloud computing. Um, that has created a further complexity in terms of them operating and the decisions, or working out what decisions to make. I think the other big change I've noticed, uh, and having been involved in software for probably 15 or 20 years, both buying and selling it, uh, is that there's a significant amount of hype around agile development um, and being flexible and being able to respond to customers' needs and desires. Companies want to have an agile development process, but they want a defined and, and fixed price. And often those two things are in contrast and trying to navigate your way through that is, has been interesting. I guess the third area, which is, uh, has been an ongoing problem for a long time, is around who owns the IP, particularly when you're dealing with big companies and they don't want their uh, that, that solutions that are built using their data and solving their problems. They don't necessarily want it to go to the competitors. And although that has been a, you know, a problem for quite a while, Um, It is particularly uh, an issue now as there are 
significant advances in terms of how we are solving a whole bunch of different problems being experienced by companies by using artificial intelligence and machine learning. Mm -hmm. So what are some strategies that you have been implementing to adapt the business to rapid changes in the tech industry that we have just talked about? I think what's most important is having a, an appreciation for the problems and the issues that the, uh, your customers are solving um, or trying to solve. I think also making sure you're spending time and effort and energy with customers who you think have a enterprise persona is of such a nature that they are going to benefit from your kind of expertise. So I think it's really important that as we are venturing into an era, we're already already in it, when we're using sophisticated technology, uh, where data accuracy is key, where there needs to be a level of the people who are going to be interpreting the insights and the information that's being generated by our applications, there needs to be a recognition that it's a different type of person who's going to be doing that. So... To be successful in in this field, you need to make sure that you're partnering with with companies and your clients and customers are companies who actually appreciate that and realise that that uh, you know they need to upskill in terms of the people they're going to be dealing with. They need to be sufficiently patient as we as we implement these new these new technologies. And from our side, we need to be really conscious of taking them on, taking the customer and the client on the journey being patient enough to understand what their problems and issues are and being sophisticated enough not just to purely respond to what our customer asks for but to be responding to what they need. And often what they ask for and what they need can be two different things because what they ask for is often constructed in a, from a dimension which doesn't actually have the current technologies available to them. So our job is to kind of really interpret um, what they're asking for, uh, interpret that into what they actually need and actually delivering that. What skills are imperative to successfully signing a tech commercial deal? One of the most important things I think is, is obviously empathy with the customer and the client and their problem. I think being able to stay away from jargon as much as possible and speak in kind of real person's language. Also to be very upfront about the process, the opportunities, some of the things that they can expect. So you're completely honest uh, all the way through. Um, I think one of the mistakes I think we've made is that we've thought that some customers may be more agile and than they are and you end up wasting a whole bunch of time, effort and energy without actually getting the results you need. So, you know, 80% of the time I think we've we've been successful, probably 20% of the time we haven't. And I think the common theme is that the customer didn't really appreciate the length of time it can take. Having said that, once the product is mature and we've got product market fit, then Obviously, that the, the amount of time it takes to convert a customer into a paying licensed customer is significantly less. It's more just in that development phase. You know, I mean, we're still we're still going through that as we build out product market fit for our, our all of our product suite, and we're increasing obviously the speed 
the sales cycle between initial meeting and and sale. But in terms of to get to that referenceable product and referenceable client, you need to make sure that the, it is someone who is aware of the journey, is willing to go on it, and is willing to partner with you. And then, you know, obviously, it's very important, even as you, when you have product market fit, that you're constantly learning, updating, and investing in the product and investing in the client and customer relations. What are some key considerations that you take into account in terms of developing a robust set of KPIs and strategy for a business? It's really important to engage all of your uh, employees and partners in the development um, so they feel part of it and they actually understand it. You need to understand your strengths uh, kind of weaknesses and opportunities and threats that may be done through a squad analysis or something, something else. You need to make sure in the development of KPIs that there is a direct connection and correlation between those KPIs and, to, and the activities that most of the people are engaged in. Really important that you not just look at kind of financial metrics, but there are other sort of soft measures that are involved, both in terms of the way employees and employers or bosses and uh, their bosses and their people are interacting with each other, but also in terms of uh, in terms of customer empathy. So making sure that there is a customer centricity and focus is kind of really critical. And I think often, and we've been guilty to this to some extent. Sometimes we can get so internally focused uh, about the way we're structured and managed that we kind of lose sight that, that ultimately we're here to solve customers' needs, and that needs to be. Um, it needs to be the mantra for everyone within the business and all the KPIs or the majority or a significant number of the KPIs need to, need to revolve uh, around that. What is your recommendation to identifying an opportunity and a potential customer to be able to develop a long-lasting and fruitful partnership? In terms of identifying whether a business is a potential customer, I mean, you've got to essentially understand what your product does and who and how it can help. I think once you've done that, and that's reasonably easy because you've been through the process of building it for a particular reason, and typically you've had someone in mind as you've been building that. So, you know, you'll be looking at in terms of the size of the customer, how many outlets they have, how many products that they may have, the, the problem they may be solving is does it fit with the product that you have developed? Is the customer going to have the sufficient resources uh, and are they sufficiently complex to be taking on a complex application? Are they going to have the right types of people who are going to be able to benefit from it? Are they going to be able to understand that there is both a revenue opportunity plus also a cost-saving opportunity? Do they have the operating model in terms of to be able to take advantage of it? The problem that you have... Do they actually understand they've got that problem and they're actively looking to solve it? I mean, fortunately, you know, we've, we've been really lucky in terms of the, it's pretty clear what our products do. We've, you know, we've been very deliberate in only developing products with a customer. So we're solving their problem directly. So we know who stands to benefit from it and we can clearly articulate and understand the value proposition Typically, you know, we're not having trouble 
finding customers, you know, as, we, as we're getting bigger, our issue is how do we actually satisfy the demand. So what stages does a lead typically go through in Hyvree's sales pipeline journey? Uh, so we manage, we obviously we manage a lot of the leads through a CRM. We then typically go through a, a validation process, a kind of high-level validation process in terms of is this, is this customer likely to tick the criteria we have? Is the data clean enough? Do they have sufficient resources? Do they have the problem that um, where our solution will solve? Once we've kind of validated that, then we will, depending on how the lead arrived, if it was an incoming lead or if we, or we know people in the organisation, plus also we have some uh, referral partners who will help us um, identify and introduce us to the correct people. Then once we have satisfied those validation issues, then we'll do an in-depth analysis of the organisation, uh, who are the decision makers, who is operating in what area, what technology are they using, what markets are they operating in, what what budgets do they have, how happy are they with the current products they're using that operate in our space. And often in, in at the same time, well, then we'll do a demo, we'll meet with them, we'll understand you know, what their budgeting cycle is, answer some of those questions I just spoke about, do a demonstration, find out uh, how interested they are. Typically, because of the where the development process is up for the, for most of our products, they'll, they require a proof of concept or a trial. That's fine because it does help us further develop the product. Ultimately, probably in the next 12 months, we'll hopefully avoid the need for trials and proof of concepts. And then once the proof of concept is over, uh, we have the data and the capability to further reinforce the value proposition. And then we move on to a licensing uh, discussion, uh, license the product, uh, and then manage it as a customer. So I think it's important to recognise that the sales process doesn't stop once a trial or proof of concept has commenced. It extends all the way through to a license being sold, but then you man- you continue the same, if not a greater level of customer service once that's happened, once the license is sold. From our conversation, it sounds like there are three very important stages that occur during the process of nurturing a lead and then building a partnership with a client, and feedback would be one of those stages. Why is it important to receive and implement feedback? It's always important to take on feedback. I question whether it's a blanket implementation of all feedback. It's important that Feedback is considered and actually validated. You want to, whether that's in relation to how you're explaining what the product does, how you're pricing the product, how you're selling it, are you speaking to the right people in the organisation, are you describing the value sufficiently? I think it is important to consider that feedback, feed it back to the product manager where appropriate, feed it into the sales team, and then there needs to be a consideration, do we need to change on the basis of that feedback? It's a mistake to value every bit of feedback equally. And that is a kind of a, a value judgment, what something one acquires with experience. But if you implement every piece of feedback without making a considered view in terms of its value, you'll basically be sort of running to pillar the post and you'll be 
running around like a, a mad person. So, it, it, and that's that's part of the experience of having been down the track. You can often validate the importance of the feedback by the individual it's coming from, how well they know what they're talking about. It's complex. One doesn't want to be deaf to feedback, but then again, one doesn't want to blindly react to every bit of feedback they receive. That's interesting in a way that how do you communicate to a potential or an existing customer that their request or piece of feedback cannot be implemented? It depends on what the feedback is. If the feedback is a particular function that they need and need to deprioritize it or you don't you haven't noticed that there is a similar priority elsewhere, well you just need to be upfront with them about where it fits on the pipeline, potentially assist them identifying alternative ways to solve the problem, highlighting where and how other people may be, may be doing it. Often we find that what the feedback is and what they want isn't always the solution to the problem that they're looking to solve. So the greater empathy you have in terms of really understanding problem is then you're not necessarily reacting to the feedback but you can still solve the problem in another way if the feedback relates to kind of softer issues in terms of i don't know the level of customer service the type of customer service the professionalism of customer service it's extremely important that you you make every effort and to really understand what the issue is, to validate is it, is it a genuine concern, um, is it a personality issue that needs to be addressed, you need to bring other people, different people in to working with the customer. So I don't think there's, a, there's not a one-size kind of fits all. In essence, the closer you are, closer you understand uh, the customer, the needs, who they are from an individual and who, who based on who they are, who they are from a kind of corporate entity, the better positioned you will be to solve whatever piece of feedback you're being provided with. Another important stage in signing a tech commercial deal with agile development is iteration. What parts of the deal are subject to the most negotiation? Price is is often a key issue. We we use a value based pricing kind of methodology. So we look at really trying to understand the value that the organisation will benefit or derive from the use of our from the use of our application. Um, so we try and base all of the pricing discussions. In fact, uh, there will be at times there will be. We, there will be some negotiation in terms of how you're deriving those. So you absolutely need to understand their business really well to, for them to understand the value. Um, so that's often often, uh, often a bit of a dance. We typically try and avoid trying discounting at all. So we have a tiered pricing model for some of our applications. You know, if they're un, not prepared to pay for this tier, then they'll pay for another tier and get less functionality, but then always have the option to upgrade once they're more convinced with the product. We're open to different types of commercial terms. We can do benefit share. We can have it based on usage. We can have it based on the number of outlets or people. Um, it's important to be conscious about is the customer risk adverse? Do they want kind of certainty in their pricing or they, uh, do they have a greater risk tolerance so therefore are able to, happy to potentially have a, a lower fixed fee but be subject to some type of 
um, some type of incentive basis, but that may not be known and, uh, until further into the licence term. Uh, exclusivity is certainly a big issue. We typically don't offer exclusivity, but what as we're, we're developing brand new solutions, often our customers are seeking some type of exclusivity. We like to enter into kind of partnerships, particularly with the first five to 10 customers, where we will give them additional service, provide additional scope for the same price, um, but in return for that, there will be uh, there will be sort of a, a bunch of partnership activities where we'll do some joint marketing, for example, and then the scope needs to be negotiated. If it's a proof of concept, you know what's the length and breadth of the proof of concept, what will actually be delivered, uh, and also kind of the time frame. The term of a license is often negotiated. Um, who, you know, typically we want longer terms. They want greater flexibility. So that can also be kind of a negotiating point. Out of curiosity, what is the shortest and longest it took Ivory to negotiate and sign a deal? The shortest, probably a week. And that's with our reasonably mature product. Didn't need to do a trial. They knew about it. We did a demo and then we had pricing was pretty much uh, agreed or there was a standard rate. Enterprise sales does have a long sales cycle. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I think our new products, which one which looks at um, space and assortment at the supermarket, we're finding typically our proof of concept sales cycle is about two and a half to three months. So when it comes to potential customers that are still at the top of the funnel and have been for years, they display interest, but they haven't moved down the funnel. How are you able to foster that relationship? Typically, they ha- you, they, you have to see that there's going to be huge benefit if you convert, if you convert the customer. Often happened is that there's been a change in personnel you've got to a certain distance in the in the relationship there's been a change of personnel or the or their internal circumstances have changed which has um, meant that things have been put on hold you need to be pretty pragmatic that if things are on hold that you do go on hold you keep in contact with them to make sure and to hear from them in terms of when things are when they when it does look like they've got resources both in terms of human resources plus financial resources plus a level of interest <clears throat> to be able to re-engage. So I think really understanding and mapping out each of those customers is kind of critical to ensuring you're doing that effectively. Sometimes, particularly in some of the markets we work in, customers don't like to say no and that they're happy to kind of string you along rather than disappoint you when often really you'd prefer to you'd prefer a no rather than a sort of a lukewarm Yes, or maybe. So there's a level of maturity required to kind of really interpret what they're wanting and how they're wanting it and are they genuine about it. Mm-hmm. To finish our conversation today, let's talk about the third important stage that occurs during the process of nurturing a lead and then building a relationship with a client, and that is listening. And listening seems like a rather straightforward skill, when it comes to negotiations, but how do you become a great listener? Listening skills are critical. I think it's listening and comprehending is what's important. And 
well, I find to be effective, maybe quite annoying for them, but effective for me personally, is to regularly reiterate what you think you've heard. Not uncommon that what you think you heard isn't what they meant. We all have certain biases. Uh, we all have pre-knowledge or preconceptions which often taints or influences the way we actually comprehend things. So it's really important to um, reiterate what your understanding is, what you're hearing. And it's interesting, you, you can be in the, the same meeting as you know, several of your work colleagues, but each of you come out and you could claim you heard something quite different from each other. That's important. I think it's important, what is important, that through these meetings and through the interactions, particularly as you're getting to know a customer or a potential client, that you have more than one person uh, there because it's difficult to maintain that concentration for the amount of time. Um, plus also you'll get um, a variety of interpretations of what you heard. But if you continue to confirm what you understand when you're listening, you're more likely to ensure that what you've understood is actually what they've meant. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. If you want to learn more about how we do things different at Hybrid, I highly recommend listening to more of our podcast episodes and also stay on the lookout for new releases coming out. We have a lot of exciting guests and I cannot wait to share those stories with you. So stay tuned and till the next time, everyone.